This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. I'm Tim Kripe. Welcome to episode number 25, recorded on February 24th, 2012. I'm your host, Tim Kripe, as I mentioned, uh, and I used to be from Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center, as some of our former listeners might recall, but I've now moved to Nationwide Children's Hospital, affiliated with The Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. It's only about an hour and three quarters north of my former location, but um, now the chief of hematology, oncology, and bone marrow transplantation here, and uh, enjoying the ride of uh, moving my family and moving to a new job. So it's my life has been a bit discombobulated, as it were. That's my favorite word lately over the last two months. So we haven't actually recorded an episode of TWIPO for two whole months. I was looking, the previous one was December 19th, so even more than two months. So I apologize to our listeners for that, and we're hoping to get back on track. And today with me to help us get back on track is one of my co-hosts who's still in Cincinnati, and that's Lionel Chow. Welcome, Lionel. Hi, uh, Tim. It's great to be back, and I uh, just want to say congratulations on your new position. We uh, are all excited here for you, and uh, we're also excited that uh, uh, that we think this is going to represent, and I know we've talked about this, is we hope that this is going to represent an, uh, an increased opportunity to uh, bring our two institutions closer together and to uh, have a lot more collaborations initiated because of this. Thanks, Lionel. I think that's certainly the hope. You know, at pediatric oncology has a long-standing history of cooperation among institutions. It's the only way we've really been able to make progress with all the different cooperative groups that formed and then merged the children's oncology group and and all the other consortia that have popped up. And uh, I think working together is the only way to get it done. So I appreciate Absolutely. that. Yeah. So you know, the last time that you and I uh, had a, an episode together was the uh, one recorded on, I think, December 5th, which was sort of our round-robin, year-end review of hot topics in, in neuro-oncology. And uh, one of the major things we discussed on that episode was all this new genetic subclassifications of uh, medulloblastoma. And I think you had mentioned it on that episode that there was sort of a uh, paper that was on its way out um, to being published that uh, synthesized a lot of that information together. Can, I think that came out like the day or two after we recorded it. So can you tell us about that paper briefly? Yeah, absolutely. So our timing couldn't have been, uh, uh, well, uh, I guess good or bad, depending on how you look at it at the time. Um, but this paper came out in Acta Neuropathologica uh, in the December issue of that journal. And it's entitled Molecular Subgroups of Medulloblastoma, The Current Consensus. Basically, it was a paper that resulted from uh, a meeting of the minds, as it were, between all of the uh, principal investigators and, and their lab personnel that published those four or five major papers that we discussed during that episode. Uh, so the first author on this particular um, 
review article, if you want to put it, is uh, Michael Taylor from uh, the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. The last author is Stefan Pfister from um, uh, the German Cancer Research Group in uh, Heidelberg. The authors include, you know, the group from St. Jude, from uh, Britain, as well as from Boston Children's. Uh, and Johns Hopkins. So, you know, all the major people were involved in coming up with this consensus view. And uh, people may recall, recall that depending on who was doing the analysis, uh, there were anywhere from uh, four to six different groups that had been identified uh, as molecularly defined subgroups in medullary blastoma. And, 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 and the consensus view that came out of it was that there the, where the, the community is now, now going to sort of look at uh, medulloblastoma as having four major subgroups with perhaps further division within each subgroup. But the four major subgroups have consistent clinical and molecular features associated with them. So two of the subgroups uh, uh, have always been well-recognized uh, and associated with specific uh, developmental signaling pathways, the WINT pathway and the sonic hedgehog pathway. So these are two uh, specific subgroups of tumors. And then the last two subgroups are, are tentatively just referred to as group three and group four for the time being. Uh, but once again, each of these subgroups may be subdivided into two other sub-subgroups, if you will, depending on how you do this analysis. So I encourage people uh, who have an interest in medulloblastoma to uh, pull out this paper. Once again, it was an act of neuropathologica, the December issue. I think we're going to see very, very quickly clinical trials designed based on identification of these uh, specific subgroups. That's great. Um... So for those listeners who want to listen to our original discussion about that, that was episode 22. And today we're going to turn our attention to a different type of brain tumor, glioblastoma, among the most deadly, certainly a histology that's shared with adults and pediatrics, but perhaps some differences uh, when we start looking more at the molecular biology or genetics of these. Uh, we picked them because they're high-profile papers, one in Nature Genetics. Oh, and one in Nature. So, you know, very high-profile journals. So tell us about these papers. Yeah, so the backdrop for this, uh, as you pointed out, is brain tumors or particularly uh, high-grade gliomas or glioblastoma in the childhood age group are one of the tumors that we have the most problems with clinically. We don't have any uh, effective treatments essentially for these patients. And as a result, even though they are relatively rare tumors, they are now really one of the top two leading causes of cancer-related mortality and morbidity in the childhood age group. And I think uh, we all realize as pediatric oncologists that, uh, you know, we've reached a certain level uh, rate of, of being able to cure our cohort of patients across the board. You know, we, we quote a number of 80% very frequently that we, we cure 80% of cancers across the board in pediatrics. And um, the feeling now is that, you know, we're not going to really get past this threshold until we start addressing the brain tumors, and in particular, uh, this brain tumor, which now makes up a, a significant portion of that mortality that's occurring now. So I think that's, that's sort of the backdrop for why this paper, um, or these, these two papers, may uh, uh, represent a breakthrough for, uh, in this field. So previous studies had sort of led us to believe, as you pointed out, that, that even though at a histological level, when we look at the tumor under a microscope, we can't really see many differences between pediatric glioblastomas and their adult uh, counterparts. When you look at the molecular changes that are occurring in these tumors, there had been a number of studies to suggest that there were differences 
at the chromosomal number level. So certain gains and losses may be different between pediatric tumors and adult tumors. And then at the gene expression level, there may be certain genes or signatures of genes that are um, uh, slightly different in the pediatric uh, populations compared to the adult uh, tumors. So what these two groups did to get a better understanding of the molecular changes was to directly take DNA from tumor and apply this new technology called next generation sequencing, which allows us to sequence the entire genome or portions, you know, subportions of the genome very specifically so that we can identify in a non-biased manner all the different mutations and changes that are occurring in these tumors. So the first paper uh, was the paper that I'm going to discuss was a paper that was published in Nature and it was published online on January 29th of this year. The first author is Jeremy Schwartzen Ruber and the title of this paper is Driver Mutations in Histone H3.3 and Chromatin Remodeling Genes in Pediatric Glioblastoma. This paper was a large collaboration uh, between several different labs and countries, in, in, including the major group from McGill University in Montreal, Canada, and the two major investigators there, senior investigators there were uh, Jacek Majewski and Nada Jabato. And this was also a collaboration with the ubiquitously present Stefan Pfister from Heidelberg, uh, who we also just mentioned recently. You know, the uh, number of authors on this, uh, or the number of institutions involved is just enormous. I mean, between the, the list of authors and the list of institutions, if the institutions weren't in micro-sized font, you know, it would take up the entire first page of this paper. Yes, and, and I think you'll see why that is, because they collect tumors, they collect 784 of these tumors from different sources to, to, to corroborate their data. Uh, and you and I both know very well how, what a, what a uh, incredibly large undertaking it is to amass uh, such a collection. And it really takes a collaboration between multiple, multiple institutions to collect this number of tumors from such a rare type of tumor. Yeah, it speaks to all that collaboration again that's required. So right, right. They, they've done it well, it looks like. Yes. So the particular technique that these people used was uh, called whole exome sequencing. So as I mentioned, using this next generation technique, they were able to just, using an enrichment technology, isolate just the exome, so all the protein encoding sequences within the genome, and then sequence just the exomes and analyze those. So we're just looking at protein encoding genes here. Their initial cohort of patients to look for these mutations, they start small and they end up large. So they started with just six patients for whom they had matched tumor and constitutional DNA uh, so, so that they could determine whether mutations that they located, that they identified, were specific to tumors or not. So they applied their whole genome sequencing to these six tumors and their uh, constitutional counterparts. And what they found, and you can sort of see this in figure one, it, it's actually the top six, figure one panel A, uh, it's the top, top six tumors in this, in this figure, in this table are actually the six initial tumors that they, they, they did. So just a little bit, before we get into the specific mutations, just a little bit of, uh, of interesting uh, data that came out of these six tumors. One group in particular, Bert Vogelstein and Ken Kinsler's group at uh, Johns Hopkins has been sequencing a lot of, using a similar approach, whole exome sequencing, sequencing a lot of different types of tumors, both in adults and pediatrics, uh, over the last uh, four or five years. And they've published uh, many uh, prominent papers. And what that's allowed us to do is to compare 
uh, how many mutations are occurring, how many somatic mutations are occurring in different tumor types. In the supplementary material of, of this paper, uh, they do this comparison so that we can get an idea of, of how pediatric tumor types are different from adult, adult tumor types. And this is in supplementary table four. So they compare the mutations that are occurring in adult glioblastomas, pancreatic, colorectal, and breast tumors, which are all adult tumor types, medulloblastomas, which is a pediatric tumor type, and then this particular study with pediatric glioblastomas. And what really is striking is that the adult tumor types all have significantly more somatic mutations per tumor for each individual tumor uh, than the pediatric type. So the numbers are for breast, breast cancer has the most, 101 mutations for each, muta for each tumor. Uh, colorectal was 77, pancreas 48, adult glioblastomas was 36. In this study, using those six initial tumors, they found 15, on average, mutations per tumor. And for the medulloblastomas, the number turned out to be eight mutations per tumor. So this tells us really two things. One is that it appears, I, I mean, this is, a, this, is, this is early days for whole genome sequencing, whole exome sequencing. So just given these two tumor types, we can say that uh, the pediatric tumors appear to have fewer mutations per tumor. And even in similar tumor types, the pediatric glioblastomas also have significantly fewer mutations than their adult, adult counterparts. And, you know, we could go on and on about talking about different reasons why this may be. But I think one of the things this may be telling us is the difference between how easy it is to mutate a embryonic cell type or a more immature cell type that's present in uh, a pediatric age group compared to maybe a more adult type neural, uh, adult type stem cell or an adult mature cell that has to de-differentiate in, in epithelial cancers uh, that, occur, uh, that, that frequently occur in, in adults. It's interesting also to speculate. I mean, we all know that we're getting a lot better success rates in, in, in curing uh, pediatric uh, tumor types in general compared to adults. This may be one of the underlying reasons. Perhaps adult tumors have so many different mutations that they have so many escape mechanisms to the different types of chemotherapy drugs that we throw at them, whereas pediatric tumors may have a much more narrow spectrum of what they can tolerate in terms of being assaulted with uh, the, the type of chemotherapies we throw at them. And maybe that's one of the underlying reasons for, for why uh, we have a little bit more success with, uh, with pediatric cancer care than in, adult, uh, in the adult field. I guess it's hard to know for sure, and that's going to be something difficult to test, but because I guess you'd have to sort of knock out different subsets of, or replace different subsets of well-type genes and, and then test and see whether it makes a difference. But it also occurs to me that one reason this could be the case is that the mutations in the pediatric tumors might be mutations that affect a broader subset of genes or a broader uh, subset of uh, the expression of other genes or other proteins so that fewer, you know, more master regulator transcription factor yes. or DNA control genes as opposed to maybe more downstream mutations in adults. So you need more of them to get to the same total phenotype. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. That's an excellent point and probably very relevant to the mutations we're going to talk about today, in fact. So, so looking back at the table that's in figure one, so from these initial six tumors, they found four samples that had uh, recurrent heterozygous mutations in one specific gene called H3F3A, which uh, encodes a variant of histone H3 called H3.3. The striking thing was that this, this mutation 
affected very specific uh, amino acids, specifically a lysine at position 27 in two of these tumors and a glycine at position 34 in, 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 in two other of these tumors. And in panel B of figure one, they, they sort of show you where these mutations are located and how they may be relevant to the functioning of this protein. That's something our, our listeners won't be able to see that. Right. right. So, so many of our listeners may, may know, if you're familiar with histones, that histone proteins undergo important post-translational modifications that are important for regulating their function in, in the sense of how they can uh, enable or uh, disable transcription of genes that are nearby where the histones have been incorporated into the DNA. So lysine 27 happens to be one of these sites of methylation. And the second mutation, glycine 34, is just two amino acids away from another site uh, that is also methylated as well as being acetylated. So these are really important post-translational modifications, as I said, that control the function of this protein. And another interesting thing is that in between these two sites of mutation is also a phosphorylation site. So there's a lot of stuff going on right around where these mutations are occurring that are likely to affect the function, the ability of this protein to control transcription where this protein is incorporated into the DNA. So can you just tell our listeners briefly, I guess, what a histone protein does or is? DNA in the cell, of course, uh, has to be packaged correctly. And uh, because we start off with a DNA molecule, the average DNA molecule in the cell, is, a, if you stretch it out, is actually about two meters long. And that has to be packaged in a, a very organized manner into the nucleus of a cell. And the nucleus of most cells is uh, uh, you know, about 10 microns in, in size. So obviously, this has to be a highly ordered, uh, fas- uh, highly ordered packaging. And these histone proteins are one of the uh, proteins, among others, that uh, helps this packaging of the DNA. So DNA actually winds around a collection of these histone proteins so that it can be compacted in size from that 2 meters down to the 10 microns. At least that's part of the way it's packaged. So, so the histone proteins are important for packaging the DNA, but also DNA can be, within the nucleus, can be in a slightly more condensed manner, which is um, called heterochromatin, or it can also be in a slightly more open manner, which is called euchromatin. And uh, the euchromatin is where uh, we believe that the transcriptionally active, the genes that are going to be transcribed, are located compared to the heterochromatin, which is more compacted and perhaps less accessible to transcription factors, etc. So once again, this process is very highly regulated within the cell and within different cell types. These histone proteins play a major role in uh, determining which parts of the DNA, which genes, which locuses within the DNA is accessible to transcription factors and ultimately which genes are going to be expressed. I guess another important point here then to think about is that this histone H3.3 is utilized all the way along those two meters of DNA, right? So it's coiled around this same protein. So if this protein is mutated, it's likely mutated all the way along those two meters. Well, so that's actually a very interesting point because there are are several variants of histone proteins. And there's actually several variants of histone H3 proteins. And this particular variant, the H3.3, appears to be uh, what we call a replication-independent histone variant. Most histone 3 variants, as the DNA is replicating, histone 3.1 gets incorporated into DNA as it's being replicated. So as you point out, it gets incorporated all along the entire length of a replicating strand of DNA. 
But this variant is not incorporated at the time of replication. It's actually a replacement histone. And it gets replaced. People have found that there are actually uh, locations within the chromosome that this histone variant is more preferentially replaced. And these locations include sites of active transcription. But interestingly, they also include the telomeres as well as the pericentric heterochromatin. So the story here is very complicated because it appears to be associated with pericentric heterochromatin, which, as I said, is, uh, would be less transcriptionally active. It appears to be associated, that this histone appears to be associated with sites of active transcription. And then it also appears to be located at sites at the telomeres, which are, which are the ends of the DNA. So there's very specific sites and they have, and, and they might be doing different functions at each one of these sites. So there's still lots of, lots of different sites, so it could affect a, a lot of different genes. Yes, yes. Um, and, and, and the story gets even more complicated because when we look at um, these particular mutations, so the lysine 27, as I mentioned, has actually been, studies that have been done uh, in mostly in cell culture have demonstrated that this particular lysine modification, methylation at this lysine appears to be associated with transcriptional repression, whereas methylation and acetylation at lysine 3036, which is the lysine which is just two residues away from the glycine mutation that has been described here, is associated with transcriptional activation. So, you know, this story right now, is, is, this is the infancy of the story. We have mutations that are likely affecting the function of the histone, but we really don't know at this point whether or not this is going to be affecting, whether these mutations are going to be affecting the pathway in a similar manner, or whether they're going to be associated even with you know, increased gene expression or decreased gene expression. It could be either right now. And it could be both, right? Um, it depending could be on the location, right? Yeah. So anyways, that was the initial six samples. And they, you know, uh, as I said, they, they found these mutations, these recurrent mutations. And they also found in these initial six samples, mutations in four of, uh, four of the samples in a gene called ATRX. And this is important because ATRX, along with another protein called DAX or DAXX, form what's called a chromatin remodeling complex with histone H3.3. So they're actually, these two proteins are actually necessary for histone H3.3 to be incorporated, to be replaced into the DNA at the pericentric heterochromatin sites and at the telomere sites. And this is fascinating because previously, previous studies in a rare type of adult tumor called a pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor, which people may recognize because this was the tumor that uh, Steve Jobs had and succumbed to. But anyways, a previous study had shown that 43% of these pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors had mutations that ablated the function of ATRX or DAX. None of these tumors had histone H3.2 mutations, but ATRX or DAX mutations have been described in this tumor. And what's fascinating is that in this set of tumors, the pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, there was a 100% correlation between ATRX mutation or loss of expression of ATRX and something called the ALT mechanism of telomere maintenance. So let's take a step back. Telomeres are pieces of DNA that protect the chromosomes at each end of the chromosome. One of the things that we know about telomeres is that with each 
replication of the cell, when the DNA has to replicate, the telomere gets a little shorter with each replication. And that's because of the mechanism by which DNA is replicated. It can't uh, actually get right to the end. So that's why we have the telomeres to protect the genes that are close to the ends. Now, the cell has one major mechanism, has, has a uh, primary mechanism of regenerating these telomeres if they get too short, and that is using an enzyme called telomerase. And it's long been uh, known that cancers, cancer cells, which have to replicate endlessly, need to have a mechanism to maintain their telomeres. Otherwise, their DNA, the ends of these DNAs get chopped up too much, and um, that will cause too much DNA damage for the cell to survive, even a cancer cell. So cancer cells, many cancer cells, engage uh, or upregulate the expression of telomerase in order to maintain these pieces of DNAs at the, at the ends of their chromosomes. What's been recognized more recently is that there are some tumors that do not upregulate telomerase, and these tumors happen to have an alternative mechanism of telomerase maintenance, which is called ALT for alternative mechanism of le alternative lengthening of telomeres. And we won't go into sort of how, how uh, what the mechanism for that is, but just, just to say that there is an alternative mechanism. And as I said, in this group of tumors, the pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, there was a 100% correlation between loss of ATRX or DAX expression and engagement of this alternative mechanism of telomere maintenance. So this is like a clue that's telling us perhaps there is a, the histone H3.3 mutations may be operating in this particular pathway to help um, these particular tumors become transformed. Not to skip ahead any, but then is it known if these uh, six, actually you said there were, um, I think you said four, but it looks like three in the table to me of the ATRX DAX mutants of the original six. Do we know whether those have ALT as their primary mechanism for telomere maintenance? Yes. Yeah, so if we jump ahead to figure three, they did look at a they did look they did look at alt in a subset of these tumors for which they had tumor material which is stained. So there's a mechanism of staining these tumors to see if alt is engaged. And in figure three, panel C, you can see that an alt positive tumor is where you get these large blobs of fluorescent signals that represent these uh, lengthening of tumors. Uh, and so they were able to correlate the fact that the alt positive tumors were significantly more associated with tumors that had lost ATRX or that had mutated H, uh, histone H3.3. And that's, uh, that uh, correlation is shown in the tables below uh, panel three there. Right. So what, what people have learned from pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors may apply or may be extend to these tumors as well. That's absolutely correct. Yeah. So, so uh, just to move on a little bit now, from these six original tumors, they expanded their number of tumors uh, to 48 in total for which they did whole exome sequencing. And from these 48 tumors, they, 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 from the whole exome sequencing of these 48 tumors, what they found was in total 15 out of the 48 or 31% that had mutations in the histone H3.3 gene affecting these, and these mutations affected only these two uh, residues. These were the only two residues mutated, lysine 27 and glycine 34. The lysine 27 was always mutated to a methionine, which may be important because um, it's been suggested that the methyl group on a methionine might actually simulate monomethylation of, uh, of a lysine site, of, of these lysine, of these uh, post-translational modifications at this site. And then the, the glycine residue was mutated either to an arginine 
or to a valine. So very, very highly specific changes in um, multiple patients. So among these 48 tumors, once again, I said 15 out of 48, 31% had mutations of histone H3.3. Another 15, sorry, an overlapping, but not perfectly overlapping group of 15 had uh, mutations in either ATRX or the DAX protein that I mentioned earlier. And in total, when you put these together, that meant that 44% or 21 out of the 48 tumors had mutations in one of these three genes. And what was interesting also, among other things, because this is really a fascinating paper, was that the mutation at, glyce at the glycine residue, so which doesn't directly affect a post-translational modification site, but is just close to one, was always 100% of those mutations was associated with a mutation at, at either ATRX or DAX. So that kind of suggests that perhaps the direct mutation affecting the post-translational modification, like the, the lysine site, is a very strong mutation, and the glycine mutation may require a cooperating mutation within the pathway in order to be fully in order for that phenotype to be fully expressed. And this is really nicely pointed out in a Venn diagram, Figure One, Panel D, that shows the overlap between all of these mutations that they looked at. Now there was also, uh, as you mentioned. It was only a, a, an overlap. It wasn't a one-to-one. -one. So there were six tumors that had an, a mutation in the ATRX slash DAX uh, that did not have any mutation in the H3.3. And uh, what do we know about those? I mean, that's an excellent question. We don't know anything definitive except for the fact that many, uh, you can see from the table again, that there are a few of those tumors. Well, number one, many of those tumors have homozygous mutations of ATRX or mutations of ATRX and DAX within the same tumor. So that's one thing. So that, that may be a reason for uh, not requiring the histone mutation. So it's still two out of the three genes then is what you're saying in those that's cases. Right. Another thing is that if you look at this table, they also looked at uh, documented mutations in the IDH1 gene. So IDH1 is a really interesting protein that was discovered or mutations in this anyways in tumors which was discovered about three or four years ago as well. And the IDH1 mutation, which is a highly specific mutation as well, results in accumulation of a metabolite within the cell called 2-hydroxyglutarate. There is some evidence now suggesting that 2-hydroxyglutarate plays a role in post-translational modifications of histone proteins. So there is a suggestion that perhaps it may be playing a role in this same pathway in some of the tumor types in which uh, it is mutated as well. So you can see from the table that there is no overlap between IDH1 mutations and the histone 3.3 mutations, but there is some overlap between the IDH1 mutations and the ATRX and DAX mutations, once again suggesting that perhaps uh, different combinations of these genes can cooperate to, to lead to the full ex fully expressed phenotype that's affecting this pathway. That's fascinating. It's, uh, when those things sort of fall together, it sort of makes science beautiful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, uh, you know, I will say that uh, this is, uh, you know, they, they've done this analysis on 48 samples, which you and I know that 48 samples is, is a tour de force for pediatric uh, glio glioma. But to make, you know, wide statements about, about uh, how these pathways are functioning, I think that we really need to increase that number into the hundreds to be able to, 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 to be more sure about these, these types of associations that we're saying, because, you, you know, the absolute numbers of mutations we're looking at here is still small. So I know that when it comes to telomere and telomerase, there's a lot of effort in the industry to attack that pathway as, uh, for anti-cancer effects. What about for ALT? Is there any therapeutic strategy 
to go after cells that rely on alt? That, that's an excellent question. I don't know the answer to that. I have not heard of a mechanism as of yet to which to, to there are, there are, as you pointed out, there are drugs available that are now being tested, uh, both in adult and pediatric studies to look at telomerase function, to, to inhibit telomerase function. But I don't know about ALT. I mentioned that it uses, it uses a different set of enzymes. It actually uses it uses one of the DNA repair mechanisms in order to lengthen these telomeres. Uh, so you could think that potentially there is a pathway there for which to, uh, to affect also the DNA repair. Maybe if any of our listeners have any insights on that, they can write us or call us. Yeah, we should, uh, we should actually get uh, Dr. Dreesey here to, uh, to, to talk about it one day. Yep. So, so just moving on with this paper, uh, because it actually, there's actually um, uh, even more revelations that come <laughs> in figure two. So having identified this mutation that's highly associated, uh, or these set of mutations that are highly associated with this group of pediatric glioblastomas, they, they wanted to understand whether or not these mutations were associated with just high-grade tumors, glioblastomas, or low-grade tumors, and, and also whether they were associated with just a pediatric age group or were they present in adult tumors as well? So this is where the, collab, the large number of collaborations comes in. They, this group actually assembled uh, 784 uh, glioma samples. 408 of them were glioblastomas and 376 were lower grade tumors. And so the result, and, and then they sequenced specifically these three genes, histone 3.3, ATRX, and DAX. And what they found uh, was like no, nothing short of shocking. So within the pediatric glioblastoma group, mutations in histone H3.3 occurred in 35.6% of the tumors. In the adult GBM group, only 3.4% of tumors were mutated. So right off the bat, that's telling us that uh, this mutation is highly specific to pediatric glioblastomas and not to adult glioblastomas, sort of driving home the differences at a molecular level between these two groups of tumors. And furthermore, the tumors in the adult group that actually had mutations were all in young, relatively young adults. As, you, as people may know, at a GBM, an adult age group has a peak at the 40 to 50 age group, and then another peak in the 70s. And all of these patients that had uh, histone H3.3 mutations were less than 40 years of age, or I think the oldest patient was maybe 42. But uh, all of them were sort of in their 20s. Most of them were in their 20s and 30s, the adult groups. So that does go back to the previous comment I made about perhaps pediatric cancers involving genes that affect the expression of lots of proteins, and so you don't need as many specific mutations to give rise to those kinds of cancers, yes? Yeah, that's an excellent point. And then, as I said, um, they, looked, they did a comparison between lower-grade gliomas both astrocytomas and oligodendrogliomas in both adults and children. And literally, there were no low-grade tumors, low-grade gliomas in either adults or pediatrics that had mutations in this pathway. The only other non-glioblastoma tumors that had mutations were two patients, two pediatric patients with anaplastic astrocytoma, which is a grade three tumor, just one step below a glioblastoma. Once again, this mutation is highly associated with pediatric patients and also just with the pediatric high-grade glioma patients. And interestingly, the IDH1 gene that you mentioned that may feed back onto the telomerase story, or not telomerase, but the telomere story, didn't show a difference between pediatric and adult, although it wasn't a very prevalent mutation in general, I, I would, if I'm reading that graph correctly. 
Yeah, actually, that is interesting because there had actually been a few previous papers that had sequenced IDH1 in pediatric tumors. Up until this paper was published, you know, the, the common thought was that IDH1 mutations were more commonly associated with adult tumors than pediatric. And that seems to be, this is the first paper I've seen that sort of challenged that data. And the second thing that's very interesting is the IDH1 mutations in adults, uh, we know, affect preferentially the low-grade tumors. Uh, in particular, grade 2 oligodendrogliomas as well as grade 2 astrocytomas have a very high rate of IDH1 mutation. So it's thought of in the adult uh, glioma field, it's thought of as being an initiating mutation. Interesting, because in this paper, it's only 10% of the cases in either pediatric or adult. That's right. Well, that's about the right number for adults, because as, as you may know, uh, in the adult population, uh, high-grade gliomas is a much more prevalent disease compared to the low-grade tumors. So the, the, the 10% of samples that they're seeing here is, is highly skewed because it's 10% of all the gliomas and the, and, the, and the 10% that are IDH1 mutations are likely to be all low-grade tumors. Very interesting. Uh, we all, we, our time is starting to run out, so I don't know how much more you want to say about this paper or, or if you want to just go and... Well, I, I want to mention just one more thing, and that's, and that's that in figure three, what they tried to look at, in addition, we mentioned just previously about the alt story, what they tried to look at was because these were two separate mutations that appeared to be that they thought might be affecting different sites of post-translational modification methylation at lysine 27 versus lysine 36, they did transcriptomic analysis uh, to see if there was a difference in genes that would be expressed in one group of in tumors mutated at one site versus the other. And that's shown in figure 3A, which is gene expression profiling with non-biased clustering analysis of that data. And what you can see is that the mutations cluster together, and you can see a subset of genes that are differentially regulated depending on which mutation is expressed. So this is just sort of a hint that maybe there are different mechanisms by which these individual mutations are affecting gene transcription, uh, and that one mutation may be preferentially upregulating a different set of genes than the other mutation. Well, in, in each case, it's interesting to know that, that some of the genes are upregulated and some are downregulated. So if they're, they're related to these mutations, then it does go back to what we said before that, you know, the, the mutation might affect uh, di genes differentially throughout the genome. Yes, and, and also to speak to the point that you brought up about master regulatory genes, a lot of the genes that they did notice that were upregulated in one group or the other happen to be transcription factors that are present in uh, different types of uh, stem cell populations. So that certainly speaks to the fact that, you know, there are master regulatory genes that appear to be more preferentially affected by these mutations. Fascinating stuff. So the second paper is much shorter and won't take as much time, but uh, the first author on this paper was Gang Wu, uh, and this was a collaboration between uh, St. Jude Children's Research Hospital and Washington University, um, and you know, and many of our, our, our listeners will probably know that these two institutions have banded together to accomplish whole uh, genome sequencing of all groups of pediatric tumors. Um, and so this is one of the first papers to come out from that collaborative effort. The senior author on this paper is Susie Baker, who, as you know, is my former mentor. So I've heard, I don't know if it's true or not, but I just heard this week someone was talking about this collaborative effort and that between the two institutions, there's 200 people working on this project. Do you know if that's true? Um, I, I would, I don't doubt that. Yeah. I not doubt that at all. It's amazing. That's great. Um, yeah. 
So, so what the, this paper describes is now taking a subset of pediatric high-grade gliomas called diffuse intrinsic pontine gliomas. These are uniformly devastating tumors to our, our patient population. As you know, almost every single patient who gets this type of tumor will succumb to the tumor uh, within a year or two. And because little, so little is known about this type of tumor, this group wanted to sequence the genome of these tumors to understand uh, what is going on. And so they did this from seven tumors to start with. And what they found was mutations, once again, in five of the seven tumors that affected the same gene that we just spoke about, histone H3.3, at the exact same amino acids that we've also talked about, the lysine 27, which was changed to methionine, or the glycine 34, which was changed to an arginine. Interestingly, this group also found in one of this initial one one of these tumors, one of these initial uh, group of seven tumors, that a, re- a a very closely related gene called hist one H three B, which encodes histone H three point one, also had a mutation in that same lysine residue, lysine twenty seven. This kind of throws a wrench into the story because, as I told you, histone H three point one is a replication-dependent histone and is, rep- and, and is incorporated into the, 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 all of the DNA. So we're not sure what this means yet. So most of the data within this paper is actually located in supplementary material, but I'm just going sub- uh, to, to summarize it for you very briefly. Basically, what they found was that they ex- expanded their, their set of samples to include 43 or, or 50 in total diffuse intrinsic pontine gliomas and 36 non-brainstem pediatric glioblastomas. And what they found was that in the DIPG group, 39%, 39 out of the 50 tumors had a mutation in one of these two genes, either histone H3.3 or histone H3.1. So that's 78% of DIPGs in a group of 50 tumors had mutations in, this, in these two genes. Then within the non-brainstem pediatric glioblastoma group, the number was very similar to the paper we just we just talked about, so it was thirty-six uh, percent. So this uh, this likely this alt pathway, I assume, that's st- still correlating with that, although I don't think they looked at it in this paper. Still is playing is playing an even more major role in the DIPGs. Yes, absolutely. I mean, this definitely argues that this pathway, whatever it is, and you know, it may be related to alt, is uh, going to be um, a, a uniformly important pathway in DIPGs. And the last thing that I'll just say about this paper was because, as I said uh, at the, uh, in the introduction to this paper, that uh, the collaboration between WashU and St. Jude is uh, sequencing a large number of pediatric tumors, they went into that database to see if any other pediatric tumor had uh, mutations along uh, this pathway or specifically histone H3.3.1. And literally zero tumors, zero out of 245 other uh, pediatric tumor types, and this included all sorts of leukemias uh, and solid tumor types. Uh, you know, every every tumor type, most of the tumor types that we, we that are very common in in uh, the pediatric age group, none of them had mutations in H3.3. So once again, you know, this drives home the point that this is this appears to be a really really highly specific mutation to pediatric gliomas, DIPGs, and high grade gliomas. That's really remarkable because most of the mutations. Uh, that we find in cancers in general are shared by many different kinds of cancers. RAS, P53, P10, you know, MEC, or, I mean, the list goes on and on. And there's, most of these have, are represented in all kinds of different cancer types. So this is really remarkable. It's remarkable. At its early days, I can't imagine this won't, in the, in the near 
future, we won't hear more about this uh, mutation, about how it's functioning. And hopefully, you know, the hope is this is this is one of the first mutations that we've had to be able to sort of get a handle on how to specifically treat this group of tumors. So hopefully this is going to lead to, in the not, not too near future, to uh, new approaches on how to uh, clinically attack this tumor. Well, that's great. It's nice to see all this collaborative efforts coming to some fruition and us learning more about these kinds of cancers. Hopefully, as we know more about their biology, we'll be able to learn more about how to di better diagnose and treat them. That's the goal. So you briefly mentioned Steve Jobs and the pancreatic neuroendocrine cancer. I recently listened on my iPod to that biography of his uh, written by Walter Isaacson. I highly recommend it. It was a, a, quite interesting to hear about his life. Uh, certainly a brilliant, if not eccentric, guy, but made huge impact on this planet. If you think about all that we use today, and we're Skyping right now on, on Macintoshes. Yes. <laughs> so... Well, I think that's all we have time for this week. Thank you for that in-depth discussion. You know, I, when we said, well, we're going to do these two papers and one of them's only two pages long, I thought, I thought it would go quickly, but clearly there was a lot of meat to both of these papers. They complemented each other. They represent uh, what appears to be another breakthrough in our understanding of some of these difficult cancers to treat. So, uh, thank you for being here, Lionel. Appreciate all your efforts on this. No problem. I enjoyed doing this. And, and as always, when we start talking science, uh, we can talk on forever, can't we? R right. So to our <laughs> listeners, uh, we're happy to read emails. If any of you are involved in these collaborative efforts or want to clarify something we might have said or talk to us about it, we'd love to have you on the show or have you write in an email or a comment. You could comment, post it on the iTunes store, or you can send us a note at TWIPO, that's T-W-I-P-O, at solvingkidscancer.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Twippo Podcast. You can hear whenever we post a new episode or record a new episode and then look forward to it. You can also get automatic feeds using the RSS feed link on the Solving Kids Cancer website. Thanks to Donna Lewinsky, our executive producer, Pat Buckley, our creativity consultant, and Scott Kennedy and John Lennon, who are the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer, which is a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to this week's Pediatric Oncology.